Good morning, and welcome to Come and Reason Bible Study Class. It's good to be with you again today, and I'm glad you're joining us again online because uh, we're not quite ready to meet in person again, but things are starting to improve, at least here in Chattanooga. Some of the businesses started opening again this week, and restaurants started opening again, and so things are starting to come back to life, but we still don't have a date yet when we're allowed to congregate together in groups uh, uh, like we normally do. But we will keep you posted. So at this point in time, we're still meeting like this each week at 1020. So we're glad you're able to join us. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your love and your goodness and your mercy and the truth that you've revealed to us. And we ask that your spirit will join us today, enlighten our minds, help us grow in your kingdom of love and be effective agents in our community. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing Lesson 7 in the Bible Study Guide, How to Interpret Scripture, and the title this week is Language, Con- uh, Language Text, and Context. And if you read the first uh, two paragraphs in the lesson, it says, More than 6,000 languages are spoken among the world's billions. The complete Bible has been translated into more than 600 languages, with the New Testament or some portion translated into more than 2,500 other languages as well. That's a lot of languages for sure, but at the same time, it is still less than half of the known languages of the world. An estimated 1.5 billion people do not have any part of the scripture translated into their first language. While there is still much work to be done, the efforts of Bible societies have ensured that 6 billion can read the the scripture. 6 billion, there's 1.5, 7.5 billion people in the world don't have the scripture. Think through implications of that from what we've been taught. This entire quarterly uh, has been helping us understand the importance of the Bible. And we agree that the Bible's God's inspired word, useful for teaching, correcting, training, and rebuking, and so forth, and righteousness. No question about it. But the lesson has also, in various places, made the point that the Bible is to be used alone. Sola Scriptura interpreted by them to mean Bible alone. As, as the only source of our truth and knowledge of God and our basis for salvation. But we had come in re- Reason Ministries have challenged this idea and shown that the Scripture itself teaches that God has provided three threads of evidence about himself, Scripture, nature, and life's experiences. And we want to harmonize all of those. So think about the two positions in light of what we just read in our quarterly. Scripture alone is the only source of truth and knowledge of God. Scripture plus nature and experience, and what the two paragraphs taught us. There are 1.5 billion people in the world today. That doesn't even count all the people through history that don't have a Bible they can read. There's no Bible, there's no Scripture in their language. If the Bible is the only source of truth and knowledge of God, is the... Is that position, is the position that the Corley suggested, that the Bible alone is to be used, suggesting there's 1.5 billion people in the world today who have no chance of salvation because they can't read Scripture, or at least have someone else communicate the Scripture to them in their language? What about the people who lived on the earth before Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible? Are those people without hope because they had no Scripture? Well, obviously not, because we know that Enoch walked with God until he was taken to heaven. He had no scripture. How could he possibly come to a knowledge of God without the Bible? Because he had a personal experience with God. Now, we never want to undermine scripture as God's inspired word. We validate and support that. But as we realize how reality works, we can reject the idea that the Bible is the exclusive and only source of truth through which people can come to a knowledge of God. And we embrace the Bible's own teaching uh, on this very point. The point about people who've never had the opportunity to hear Scripture. That's what we're talking about. And Paul makes this very point, starting in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, where it reads, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, that's nature, so that men are without excuse. We have no excuse in this entire world for rejecting the truth about God, even if we haven't had scripture, because the revelation of God is still being made through nature. This is Paul's first point. 
it goes on in the next few verses after that, and you can read that in your Bible in chapter 1 of Romans, to make the point that they, even though the knowledge of God has been revealed through nature, they rejected this knowledge and preferred images made with their own hands, and therefore their minds became darkened, depraved, and futile. Paul, after he describes the reality of God revealing himself in his creation, then outlines or lays out the function of design law the law of worship, by beholding we become changed, that because they reject the truth about God and they embrace things made with their own hands, their minds become darkened, depraved, and futile. And so after he describes the law of worship, after he reveals the truth that God's revelation in nature, then Paul goes on in chapter 2, verse 12, and remember when Paul wrote this, there are no chapters. So he's got one um, kind of thread of thinking and and truth that he's unfolding uh, through the book of Romans, And starting in verse 12, notice what Paul says. All who sin apart from the law, Torah, this is not the Ten Commandments. The law is a way, a shorthand of saying the Bible, the Scriptures, Torah. All who sin apart from the Scripture will also perish apart from the Scripture or the law. But all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law or Scripture who are righteous in God's sight, But it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who have not do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness and their thoughts now accusing or defending them. What is the new covenant? described in scripture hebrews 8 also in jeremiah it is this is the covenant i will make with the house of israel at that time the new covenant i will write my law on their hearts and minds paul says these people who've never heard scripture but do by nature the things that are taught there have the law written on their hearts these are part of god's new covenant the saved people of god yet they've never heard scripture do you, do you understand the point that's being made here? Scripture is God's inspired word, but God reveals himself through other channels that people can come to a knowledge of God. Those who say that Scripture is the only source of our truth deny the very Scripture they claim to believe. One of the founders of the SDA Church, under, who understood design law, wrote the following in the book called Desire of Ages, page 638. Those whom Christ commends in the judgment may have known little of theology, but they have cherished his principles. Through the influence of the divine spirit, they have been a blessing to those about them. Even among the heathen are those who have cherished the spirit of kindness. Before the words of life had fallen upon their ears, they had befriended the missionaries, even ministering to them at peril of their own lives. Among the heathen are those who worship God ignorantly, those to whom the light is never brought by human instrumentality. Yet they will not perish. Though ignorant of the written law of God, they have heard his voice speaking to them in nature and have done the things that the law required. Pause. The things that the law required? Do you think they were baptized? Do you think they paid tithe? Do you think they partook of communion? Or kept Sabbath? Or ate the right diet? Yet this author says they did the things the law required. Paul says that people like this, who do by nature the things they need, have the law written on their hearts. What kind of law can be written on a heart? These are the principles upon which life is designed to operate. The author goes on, one more sentence. Their works are evidence that the Holy Spirit has touched their hearts and they are recognized as children of God. Here we have exactly uh, the same concept that Paul described in Romans chapter 1 and 2, that God reveals himself through nature, and so there's no excuse for anyone to not come to a knowledge of God. 
And so all have opportunity for salvation. Those who respond to the principles of God, the Holy Spirit transforms their heart from fear and selfishness to love and other-centeredness. But this truth that we can discover God through nature in no way undermines our confidence in Scripture. Scripture is inspired by God and is trustworthy to lead us into all truth necessary for salvation. So we never want to undermine the purpose and value and trustworthiness of Scripture. But we want to acknowledge that God reveals himself in life experiences and in nature, and thus we want to undermine the idea that Scripture is exclusive place that we can find truth about God. Sunday's lesson. First paragraph. It says, the Bible was written as a witness to God's work in history. His plan for redeeming the fallen race of humanity and to instruct us in all ways of righteousness. The Lord chose to do this in human language, making his thoughts and ideas visible through human words. In redeeming Israel from Egypt, God chose a specific nation to convey his message to all peoples. He allowed the nation to communicate his word through their language, Hebrew, and a few portions of Aramaic. Again, we want to validate the Bible as God's inspired word, trustworthy and reliable, leading to the truths necessary for salvation. I also want to validate the Bible as a historical document that is a reliable historical document with eyewitness testimony through history to the events that were transpiring in God's dealing with the sin problem. So it does stand as a witness to the works of God in history. And we should value that witness. No question about it. But I have a question. What is more valuable evidence the witness testimony to an act, a work, or an event, or the actual work, the actual act, the actual event itself. Which is more powerful? Another way to ask it would be, what gives eyewitness testimony greater veracity or reliability? Wouldn't it be the direct corroborating evidence of what the witness is testifying about? So to the degree that we have direct evidence of what Scripture witnesses to, that direct evidence becomes more reliable than what the Scripture is testifying to and corroborates and gives us confidence in the Scripture. We don't have direct evidence of many things in Scripture. Some we do, but some we don't. Such as Daniel in the lion's den, we don't have direct evidence of that. So we trust the veracity of scripture for because of the places where direct evidence does exist it supports give you an example direct evidence versus witness testimony john chapter 4 39 through 42 this is the story of the woman at the well after she has her experience with jesus she goes back and tells all her neighbors about jesus and this is the scripture now Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony, because of her witness. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with, with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more believe, became believers. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. What's described here? Her testimony, her witness, led them to believe for themselves. But they shifted the foundation of their belief. They continued to believe. They didn't contradict the testimony that was given. But the foundation of their belief became more certain and more confident and more secure because they had direct evidence in their lives with Jesus themselves. Likewise, the testimony of Scripture is powerful, but it isn't the testimony of script. But isn't excuse me, isn't the testimony of Scripture to lead us to our own experience with God, God's methods, 
God's laws. The outcome in our lives of applying God's principles to our lives, of trusting him, of examining in nature the truths of God's kingdom, the evidence God has provided that we can see in our lives. It isn't the scripture to lead us to this reality so we can see the real world and the real problem as it's described in scripture, and as we see it in reality, it confirms and gives us confidence. When we do have direct evidence in our own lives of the reality of God, of his kingdom, of the truths that are taught in Scripture, does that undermine or take away the witness of Scripture? Absolutely not. It does just the opposite. It makes us have greater confidence in the Scripture. We value it more. But let me be very clear. This approach that I'm teaching you will result in rejecting false traditions in religious systems, in Christianity, that are made-up theories of people that are not actually in Scripture. If you take this approach requiring um, our, our understanding of Scripture to actually conform to God's design laws and the evidences that God has given us in reality, then it will expose certain theological errors and or traditions that have been accepted and taught for hundreds of years. And as you reject some of those myths or false ideas or traditions so that your understanding of Scripture becomes more and more accurate, you will be accused by those who hold to those false views of rejecting or devaluing Scripture, because they will claim that their false view is based on Scripture the way they interpret it, and your rejecting of their view, they will allege, means you don't value Scripture under undermining it. And this is exactly what the Jews did to Jesus and the apostles. Go back and read the accounts. It's he took and showed the parables and the experiences of life, and how reality works, and how the scriptures are actually perfectly harmonized with that, they constantly accused him of disobeying the law, or breaking the scriptures, or not valuing the scriptures. And this is how Jesus actually taught the scriptures, by integrating them to real life, and that's what we want to do also. So our challenge is to continually integrate Scripture with all of the realities through the design law lens and have a perfect harmony. Last paragraph says, Some people do not have the Bible translated into their native language, but, but even have various versions. Excuse me. Some people not only have the Bible translated into their various languages, but even have uh, various versions in their own language. Others might have only one version, but e- if even that. But regardless of what you have, the key point to cherish is to cherish it as the written word of God, and most important, to obey what it teaches. What do you think of this idea that we are to obey what the Bible teaches? I suspect many of us would agree with that. But isn't there a lot of disagreement among good-hearted people as to what the Bible actually teaches. Is there disagreement as to what applies to us today in what the Bible teaches? What we are supposed to obey and what we don't have to obey? Does it make a difference when we approach and read Scripture in regards to what we need to obey, whether we read it through the human-imposed law view or we read it through the creator-design law view? Does that make a difference? What Bible instructions are we to obey? I'm going to give you a list of various Bible instructions, commands from God, directives from the Creator, and and I want you to answer some questions as I go through this list. And if you get the notes, I've put the Bible reference where every one of these is found in the Bible. And so answer some questions. Are we to obey them or not to obey them? If we are to obey them, how? How are we to obey them? If you decide that some are to be obeyed and some are not to be obeyed, what what criteria are you using that this one applies but that one doesn't? If we don't obey some of the commands, 
then does that mean we have supplanted the Bible with human reason? In other words, uh, are we supposed to think about the Bible commands and reason them through to understand their meaning and whether they apply or not, or are we simply supposed to say, well, the Bible said it and we're supposed to obey? So here's a partial, just a partial list of Bible commands from God. Do not eat or drink blood. Do not eat leavened bread. That's bread with yeast in it during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This, this particular year, 2020, that was April 8 to 16. Did any of you eat bread with yeast in it April 8 to April 16? Are you obeying scripture if you do that? Do not eat animal fat. The text actually reads this way. This is the text, Leviticus 3.17. This is a lasting ordinance for generations to come. Wherever you live, you must not eat any fat or any blood. Does this apply to you or not apply to you? Do you apply the blood part but reject the fat part? How can you split that text in half and apply half and not all? Do you read it literally as a standalone text, as a rule, there's a rule, you've got to apply it, and then conclude that all animal fat, milk, cheese, butter, any products such as cakes, cookies, breads, anything with animal fat we can't eat? Or do you read it in the context of animal sacrifices and only apply it to the internal fat around the organs and in the, in the uh, body of the animal, and not such fats as milk fat? Next, do not eat pork. Do not eat aquatic animals lacking fins and scales. Do not eat meat not killed or butchered according to kosher practices. Do you ensure that if you are a meat eater, that all the meat is butchered according to the kosher and Bible instructions? Buy fermented wine with your tithe money and rejoice at church. How many of you are doing that regularly? If you're a male, you must be circumcised. Do not worship idols. Do not blaspheme. Do not consult psychics or spiritualists. Do not break the Sabbath. But what does that mean? Do we need a list? Is swimming okay? How about riding a horse? How about saddling the horse? What about driving a car, pushing an elevator button? Do not perform any work on Sabbath. Do we need a, 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 uh, to tie our handkerchiefs to our, uh, uh, pin our handkerchiefs to our clothing so we don't carry it because that would be work? What about firemen? Should they refuse all work on Sabbath? What about the people who run our utilities and our utility companies to keep the electricity turned on? Should, should they refuse all work on Sabbath? I remember when I was in medical school, in my third year, I was doing a surgical rotation, and uh, we were um, on call on Friday night, and we had an emergency surgery. We went in and did Friday evening, and uh, on my uh, third-year medical team, there was an uh, Orthodox Jewish medical student with us, and after we came out of the OR and we went into the doctor's lounge, the TV was on, and the uh, Jewish student looked at me and said, will you change the channel for me, because he wanted to watch the Memphis State basketball game, and it wasn't on the right channel, and it was Sabbath, and he was not allowed to turn the channel, because that creates a spark, and that creates a fire, and he'd be breaking the Sabbath, but if I got it on the channel for him, then he could watch it, and it was okay. Are we thankful like this Jewish, he was very thankful that a, uh, a non-Jewish person was there who could change the channel and do the work for him that he wasn't allowed to do on Sabbath. Are we thankful that we have a lot of non-Sabbath keepers out there keeping the lights on for us on Sabbath? Do we take Sabbath keeping as a rule prohibiting all work as something that applies only to the Jews, as a principle that applies to all of us, uh, do we have to make lists of things that are permitted and not permitted? Is, is work that is in service to others permitted, but work that helps us primarily is not? One of the positions we at Come and Reason have taken is that the Sabbath is a sign. It's an evidence God gave at Creation Week in the context of a war over his right to rule, of his character and methods, truth presented in love, and the Creator stopped using power and rested. And thus God rests his case for 
beings to consider and come to their own conclusion. It is a evidence of the methods and principles that people use. We've asked the question, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. If you were to do gross sin on Sabbath, have you made the Sabbath less holy? If you're to do righteous living on Sabbath, you made the Sabbath more holy. The point is, can you do anything to impact the holiness of the Sabbath? So when the commandment says, remember the Sabbath, you keep it holy, are you actually keeping the Sabbath holy, or is it always holy? And you're really just keeping yourself holy. And can you only keep yourself holy one day in seven? And thus, we take the position, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy, is The Sabbath is a sign, a tool, an instrument. It was made for man. It is for our benefit to help us all week long to consider and anticipate the meaning and the evidence that the Sabbath reveals about God's character. So we practice his principles in our life all week long. Well, interestingly enough, one of our online listeners, and we've been teaching this for a while, sent us a quotation from one of the founders of the Adventist Church in 6 Testimony, page 353, that they found, and I've never seen it before, and they sent it to us, and I was quite... Just, I just enjoyed it so much, I wanted to share it with you. And here's the quote. All through the week, we are to have the Sabbath in mind and make preparation to keep it according to the commandment. We are not merely to observe the Sabbath as a legal matter. We are to understand its spiritual bearing upon the transactions of life. In other words, what are the principles? What does it represent? How does God work? How do we live our life all week long? Continue on with the quotes. quite profound. All who regard the Sabbath as a sign between them and God should, showing that he is the God who sanctifies them, will represent the principles of his government. They will bring into daily practice the law of his kingdom, the laws of his kingdom. These are, these are his protocols, law of love. Daily we will be, daily it will be their prayer that the sanctification of the Sabbath may rest upon them. The sanctification of Sabbath rests upon them seven days a week? Are you kidding me? You mean I can't do anything all week long? See, that's the legal false approach that makes this day a day of can'ts and don'ts rather than the evidence of who God is and the principles of how life was built that was revealed when God rested on the seventh day that we who participate in his kingdom cherish and look at this day as a pen and a flag and all week long we live in harmony with our creator God. Continuing on with the quote. Daily will their prayer daily it will be their prayer that the sanctification of the Sabbath may rest upon them. Every day they will have the companionship of Christ and will exemplify the perfection of his character. Every day their light will shine forth to others in good works. This is what real Sabbath keeping is all about. It is about living in harmony with our Creator God, having the law written on the heart and mind, and the Sabbath is merely like the U.S. flag. It just symbolizes the kingdom, and we cherish the flag as Americans or whatever country you're from, and we cherish the Sabbath as a sign of how God works. Somebody's got a question. Yes, from David. He said, but does this logic about Sabbath, does it dilute the Sabbath day? And I think he means kind of what you're saying about the holiness, but we we appreciate the Sabbath. It absolutely dilutes the rules that humans make, like the Jews in Christ's day, and the many Adventists that I've known and grown up with that have their long list of do's and don'ts that make it a burden. Jesus talked about it in the Jews' days, that they put so many burdens on it, they wouldn't even lift a finger to help a, a person suffering. When Jesus was so mad on Sabbath when he wanted to heal a man. Is it, is it good to do, is it right to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? And they wouldn't answer him with this man who had a very terrible sickness. And this is, yes, it absolutely dilutes and hopefully destroys the penal legal approach to understanding the Sabbath is a rule you're obligated to keep. True Sabbath keeping, according to Isaiah, must be a delight. And when you understand that, it doesn't dilute the Sabbath. It makes it shine more brightly as an evidence of who God is and how his um, kingdom operates. Because if Satan were right about how God uh, works his kingdom, makes up rules and punishes rule breakers, there would be no Sabbath. He would have just said, get in line or I'm going to kill you. You didn't get in line, you're dead. Instead, God presents truth and love and creates a day of freedom to think, which refutes completely the allegations of Satan. So when we understand that, then we live that all week long, and that's what the the quotation, it's a beautiful quotation, Sixth Testimony, 
353. Continuing on with this list of things in the Bible that we're required to do. Do you obey so far on this list? What do you think? Are you going, yep, that's the Bible said it. You got to do them all. Nope, I'm not doing any of those. Yep, well, I'm picking and choosing the ones I like. What's your criteria? Here's some more. You must not ignore the judgment of a judge or a priest. Hmm. When Jesus and the apostles uh, didn't follow the judgment of the Sanhedrin, were they refusing to obey the Bible? Because our lesson says we must obey the Bible. And the Bible says we're not to ignore the judgment. And in fact, if you read the text, if you do, you're supposed to be put to death. Should Martin Luther have listened to the priests of his day when they made a judgment? Do not strike your parents. Do not curse your parents. Do not be stubborn, rebellious, profligate, or drunk child. Would getting intoxicated on alcohol, of course, that's what the Bible's talking about, getting drunk on alcohol. But what about today? Would it be okay to get intoxicated on ecstasy or methamphetamine since it's not mentioned in the Bible? Continuing on, do not plant more than one kind of seed in your field. And I know all of you are going to do the next one. I know every one of you have done this one. Do not wear clothing woven of more than one kind of cloth. None of you have ever had clothing that's a mixed weave of cloth, have you? Because if you do, you're breaking the Bible, Leviticus 19.19. That's a prohibition from the Lord. Do not cut your hair on the sides of your head or clip the edges of your beard. Do not dress across gender lines. Do not cut your bodies for the dead or put tattoos on yourself. You must stand up in the presence of the elderly. Women must not speak in church. This is just a partial list of instructions in the Bible. The lesson says the most important thing is that you obey the Bible. Hmm. Does it matter whether we approach the Bible through human-imposed law lenses, levels 1 through 4, deeds to be done, sin to be done, find the right rules, versus approaching it through design law, understanding the principles? What is true Bible obedience? In the New Testament... The Greek word for obedience, obey, or to obey, is hupoakue. It's two halves. The first half, hupo, is where we get hypo, like hypoglycemia, hypotension, hypodermic, and it means under or low. The last part, akue, is from where we get words like acoustic or acoustical, and it means, the word hupoakue, means a humble willingness to listen and follow or apply. Bible obedience is not about how well you perform tasks. Bible obedience is a humble willingness to listen, learn, comprehend, hear, and embrace with a heart desire to follow and apply what God is teaching. It's the attitude of, I'm hungry, Lord, to hear you, to know you, to understand you, to follow you. That's Bible obedience. Is that what you were taught? Sadly, many I, I, I was taught, many people I know, it was really taught through the human law lens, that Bible obedience about performance, the do's and the don'ts, not about the heart attitude. This is what Jesus indicated when he repeatedly t- talked about things like hearing, though they do not hear. Oh, they hear the words, but they don't have a heart attitude to actually embrace or follow. They hear the words, but their heart is not listening. Let, whom, let him who has ears hear, Jesus would say. Let him whose heart is willing to understand and embrace, let him understand and do so. People will say things today along this line. Do you hear me? Are you listening? That's what they're meaning. Not do you hear the words. Do you understand? Is your heart interested in applying? That's Bible obedience. Example. 
You have two sons, one age three, one age 14. And one day you're out in your garden, in your home, and you're pulling weeds in your tomato garden, and your three-year-old walks up behind you, sees what you're doing, and loves daddy and wants to help daddy, and, and, and walks up and pulls a little tomato plant out of the ground with a big smile and says, Help daddy? Is your three-year-old obedient or disobedient? Do you beat them and punish them because they pulled up a tomato plant? Or do you hug them and love them and teach them how to see the difference, but you understand that child's heart is eager to understand and know and help and is for you? You send the 14-year-old the weed in your garden, and the 14-year-old only pulls weeds, never damages one tomato plant, but the entire time they curse you in their heart because they can't play on their Game Boy. Which is the obedient one? The one who performs poorly but heart is longing to help you? Or the one who performs well but hates the tasks you've given them? This is the difference between levels one through four who focuses on behavior and the kingdom of God. It's always about the heart. What about all the specific instructions given through the Old Testament to the Jewish people? Well, you have to remember the context. The Jewish people became actors in a drama, in a theater. They symbolically acted out in a play form, when I mean play, theater form, theatrically, acted out the plan of salvation. And many of the instructions were part of the, pl- part of the theater and only applies to the people who go on stage. Their costumes and the scripts that we're carrying out were all theatrical and symbolic. And if we're not in the stage play, then those stage rules and instructions don't apply to us. Other instructions given to them were sanitation, were, were for physical health purposes. Others were just good order in their society, setting up how their system of of uh, human civil um, government would work. And so some apply principles of health, some don't. We have to reason through and determine along those lines. But the mature approach is always looking at the principles, not the rule. Principles, not the rule. Let me give you an example. Because many of the rules, even when they're designed to help us with the moral principles of loving each other, It's still not the rule. That guideline is all based on principle, and it's the principle that matters. Let me give you an example. Here's one, a guideline that was to help people with the moral principle of loving others, particularly in this case, honoring your mother and father. And that was Exodus 21.15, which says the following, whoever strikes his father or his mother must surely be put to death. A couple of questions for you. Do we read this as a rule that we must apply or a principle that we need to apply once we understand the principle? Do you want to apply this to your home? Yes, my children, that rule holds. They are not allowed to strike their parents. But do you break it in half and only apply the first half or do you apply the second half too? And if they do, they will be put to death. How is it we can break a rule from God in half and only take the half we like? Is this an absolute rule? A child should never strike their parent. Do you agree with that? Well, what happens if the parent has a heart attack, their heart stops, the child does a what's called a precardial thump. A precardial thump is take your fist, go boom, right on the precardium right here on the chest, and sometimes that will cause an electrical spark and start the heart back. How about if the child was an EMT, a nurse, a doctor, the parent falls down with a, with a, a, a heart attack, an arrhythmia, and they do, should they go, oh, I could save my parent, do a precardial thump, but the Bible says I'm not allowed to strike my parent. Do we take it as a rule? Can't do it. Strike your parent. Or do we understand, no, it's not about the actual act of striking. It's about the intention of the heart. It is not striking. It's about lashing out against the goodwill and health of the parent. It's about establishing your own selfishness over your love for the parent. It's not about the act. Levels one through four, it's all about that. You struck them. Yeah, but I was doing a precardial thump because I loved them and was interested in saving them in their best interest. This is principle-based thinking 
rather than rules-based thinking. Rules-based thinking invariably destroys. We see that happening around the world today in various administrations, cities, municipalities, states, and governments as they are applying various rules based on health principles to try to deal with the COVID. And some of those rules actually start causing harm because they actually interfere with what's best for the health of the people. Monday's lesson. The lesson points out that whenever one language is translated into another language, individual words can have a variety of potential other words that can, they can be translated into, and potential nuances of meaning. A single word can have nuance of various meaning. Thus, the context determines the word and the nuance. The lesson points specifically to the Hebrew word chesed, and which is translated as kindness or mercy or love. And they cite 1 Kings 3.16. And I'm going to read that verse to you from a variety of translations and show you how they translate it differently. So we'll start with the King James. And Solomon said, Thou hast shown unto thy servant David, my father, great mercy. Mercy, chesed. Here's the Good News translation. Solomon answered, You always show great love to my father David. Love this time. New Revised Standard. Solomon said, You have always shown great and steadfast love to your servant, my father. So they've added the word steadfast. Here's the New English translation. Solomon replied, You've demonstrated great loyalty to your servant, my father David. Oh, whoa. Loyalty. And then one more. This is the New Century Version. Solomon answered, you were very kind to your servant, my father David. Now think that through as you read this. You show great mercy to my father. You were very kind to my father. You show great love to my father. You demonstrated loyalty to my father. Do all those communicate the exact same meaning to you? No, they really don't. They actually have a different connotation, a different feel. And all of them are legitimate translations of the word chesed. And so this is oftentimes why it can be helpful to read a variety of translations because when you put all those words together, you get a more richer flavor of what that word is trying to connote there. Now, rightly understood, I think every one of those can be consumed in the word love. Love is merciful. Love is steadfast. Love is um, loyal. Love is kind. Uh, and so love truly fully in its richest state would include all of those. But what happens is love, in our English language anyway, gets diluted and because it has a lot of other meanings. And, and love's a good example of a word that has a lot of nuanced meaning. Love can connote all the things we just mentioned. But there's also eros, or erotic or romantic love, connotes something different. Phileo, brotherly or familial love. Agape, altruistic, other-centered regard and goodwill. Self-sacrificial love, in other words. There's also, we use the word love for attachment or enjoyment. Uh, I love my car. You, he loves his car. He loves his music. Uh, he loves fly fishing, or he loves uh, flying his little ultralight. Love has many potential different meanings. Last paragraph reads, The Hebrew word shalom is often translated as peace. But the meaning of the word is much deeper and broader than this. It can be translated as wholeness, completeness, and well-being. I think this is well said. And hopefully as you read that this week, you want to contemplate that for a minute and think that through because think it through in regard to design law. The design law lens of the word shalom, how reality actually works. God's original design. Understanding how sin has damaged God's design. What sin does to the sinner. What God's intentions are for us. His plan of redemption. His plan to cure, to heal. When we understand all those things, then we understand that shalom connotes God's plan to restore and heal us back to harmony with his design laws for life. See, being out of harmony with God and his design laws for life causes dissonance, discord, conflict, tension, pain, suffering. These are the natural results of being out of harmony with God and his design laws. 
You can't have peace there. But restoration to God's design laws, restoration to unity with God, results in healing, results in peace with God, peace with his laws, peace with our internal self, peace with others who love God's laws. And this results in wholeness, completeness, and well-being. This is not an arbitrary thing. Shalom is not a magic word, an invocation of divine power. Shalom is a statement of God's kingdom of love, the reality that only in restoration, when God's law is written in the heart and mind, when we're healed from the dysfunction of sin, that's the only place we have peace, we have wellness, we have wholeness, we have well-being. It's really beautiful when you understand it in the right context. Tuesday's lesson, the lesson points out uh, another literary device that the Bible uses, which is repetition. In English, we use bold or italics or exclamation points, but the Bible doesn't have any of those, so it uses repetition to make emphasis on something. They give the example of Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish and the sea and the birds in the air and over the livestock and all the earth and over the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And the emphasis here that God emphasizes something repeatedly. One, the plurality of God is emphasized as a plural being who's unified as one. The God, the fact that God created humanity, human beings were created by God, is emphasized over and over again, and that human beings were created in God's image as a plurality of one. In other words, two beings become unified in God's image. The Bible also emphasizes, or the lesson is also emphasizing that the Bible emphasizes that God is holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, holy, holy, holy. What is holiness? What does that actually mean? Two general ideas are associated with holiness. One is purity. The other is separation. And the separation means separation from anything that's impure. Separation from anything that's vile. Separation from anything that's sinful. Separation from anything that's unholy. So pure, devoid, free of apart from anything that is unholy, defiled, sinful, corrupt. That's what it means. God is the source of all truth, life, purity, love, goodness. And in him there is no darkness, there is no evil, there is no corruption. Thus God is infinitely good, infinitely pure, infinitely healthy, infinitely Holy, all evil, all sinfulness is distinctly separate and apart from God. Thus it thus we understand now God is holy, 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 pure and perfect in infinite ways, complete and separate from all defilement, separate in his being, separate in his character. This idea, though, of God's holiness has been corrupted in some circles to teach God has a negative and intolerant attitude towards sinners he can't stand it it upsets him he he gets he gets agitated he gets hostile and sin can't be in his presence this led to the teaching that mary had to be a sinless being because jesus being born god in human form couldn't be in the womb of a sinful being because sin can't be in his presence so mary had to be sinless also false This is exactly the opposite of the truth. The truth is that God's divine self partook of humanity damaged or corrupted by sin for the purpose of purifying, healing, purifying humanity, healing humanity, purging sin from humanity. In other words, making humanity holy. This was part of it. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. It's the exact opposite of what that false fraudulent theory teaches. In fact, sin began in God's presence in heaven, but it did not begin in God, in his person, 
pure, holy. But in Lucifer, in the vicinity of God, that's where sin began. But notice how the human law model corrupts the holiness of God. Notice how it doesn't keep the vileness of sin and death out of God's character, but the imperial penal legal model actually corrupts God's holiness while claiming to be teaching God's holiness. They teach that God's holiness is so offended by sin that God, in order to be just, must use his power to torture and kill sinners. In other words, in their view, death comes out from God as inflicted justice for law-breaking. So in the heart or being of God, he is not only now the source of life, but now God becomes the source of inflicted death. This corrupts the purity and holiness of God, and it's fraudulent and it's a lie, and we must reject it. Death does not come from God, according to Scripture. The wages of sin is death, or sin when full-grown brings Fourth death, according to the scripture, or Galatians, those who sow to the carnal nature, from that nature reap destruction. Sin comes, excuse me, death comes from those who harbor sin such that they separate themselves from the source of holiness, from the source of purity, from the source of cleansing, from the source of healing. Understand how reality will work. When you connect to God, when you open your heart to God, God's purity, God's holiness, God's presence flows into you, and his presence purges, his presence cleanses, his presence eradicates sin in you. It's only by refusing that that you remain defiled. And if you hold on to that, then you you cut yourself off from the cleansing source. And so what the Bible actually teaches, God is not the source of death. God is the source of life. Here's what the Bible teaches. The wages of sin is death. But here's what comes from God. But the gift from God is eternal life. When you open yourself from to him, he cleanses and restores. And so this whole corrupt, penal legal lie has caused millions to live in fear of God, believing he is going to be the source of inflicted pain and death, and it corrupts his holiness. We need to reject that and come back and see our God as pure, holy, source of righteousness, life, goodness. Wednesday's lesson, first paragraph, It says, words in scripture always occur in context. They do not stand by themselves. A word has an immediate context within a sentence, and it, ha- and it is th- uh, this unit that needs to be understood first. Then it has a wider context in the overall unit which the sentence occurs. This may be a section of a writing, a chapter, a series of chapters. It is essential to understand as well as possible, the context of words and sentences in order not uh, to arrive in order not to arrive at erroneous conclusions. Okay, so I like this paragraph because it helps us see that there is not just one context to a passage of scripture, but multiple contexts. There's the immediate context within the sentence. There's the context of the sentence within the paragraph. There's the context of the paragraph within the book of the Bible or the chapters of the Bible. There's a context of the entire Bible together, all taking the Holy Spirit, inspiring various people to create an entire story, the grand central theme of Scripture. There's the historical context, when it was written. There is the prophetic context. There is the spiritual context, the spiritual implications of it. And there is the great controversy context. All of these must be taken into account to get the most accurate meaning. But for me, the most important context, in my view, is understanding the great controversy over God's character and government, which means we understand the truth of God's design laws. We understand how sin is severing or breaking those design laws. We understand the purpose of Scripture to reveal the truth, both of God's character, government methods, and principles, how sin has disrupted and caused harm in God's plan of salvation. We understand all of that, and how this is a battle for your heart and mind. If we believe the Holy Spirit inspired the Bible writers, then we believe there is a harmony in the Bible. From all the passages, they will always come to the same picture about God, the same principles of God, the same law of God, the same nature and character of sin, the same consequences and conclusions that sin lead to. They will always harmonize. So let's examine another text in light of these various contexts and see if we can gain any insight into the potential meaning. As we look at the following passage, it is okay with me if you disagree and come to a different view on this passage. 
But I will ask you, if you do insist on a different view, I want you to consider why. What is your conclusion based upon? What is your conclusion? If you conclude differently than this, what will your conclusion say about God, his character, his methods, his principles, how reality actually works? Is your conclusion consistent with reality, or does it contradict it? If you insist on a different view, is it based on integrating it all together or on long-held assumptions? And the passage we're going to look at is Psalms 139, 13 through 16. I'm going to read it to you out of the NIV first. Here it goes. For you, for you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that, I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Is this translation most accurate? Or has this translation introduced ideas that are not actually intended by the author? In other words, contrary to the original context. Even false ideas into our understanding about God that has led into many bad theologies perpetrated across the whole world right now in Christianity. If we take this translation as it reads, then do we conclude that God is the one who directly creates you and me and every one of us. He's knitting us together in our mother's womb. Or was it really the mother's womb because we take it as it literally reads and the second half doesn't say mother's womb it says in the depths of the earth and so it's really in the depths of the earth that this happens oh wait no we reject that that's just metaphorical we take literally the womb though how is it you take literally the first half but not the second half well let's consider we'll we'll consider the typical interpretation that god knits us together in our mother's womb if this is true that god is knitting each one of us together individually in our mother's womb then God must be responsible for birth defects. When a child is born with spinal bifida, God must have had a bad knitting day. If this is correct rendering, then God's divine creative power must be less powerful than a bottle of vodka. Since there are so many children with fetal alcohol syndrome born, uh, mothers are doing vodka, but God's still knitting and, and, and the vodka wins. Worse... Since we are born in sin and conceived in iniquity, if we, this rendering is literally true, then God is using his power to create sinners, defective humans, which is absolutely not true. The Bible truth is that God had direct involvement in the, in the formation of only three human lives. Adam, Eve, and the incarnation of Jesus. And all three of them were sinless when God finished his act. Jesus stayed that way, praise God. Adam and Eve did not. But when God created Adam and Eve, he gave them a godlike ability, the ability to procreate beings in their own image. After Adam and Eve sinned, they changed themselves, they became sinful, but they still had the ability of procreation. And thus they could create or procreate beings in their image. And this is why we're born in sin and conceived in iniquity. God does not control the use of the abilities he gives us. We can use them as God designed, or we can abuse them. When people have children, it is by the choice of those individuals to use those abilities God has given them. It isn't a choice of God for them to do that. When a man abuses the ability and rapes a woman and she becomes pregnant, this is not an act of God. She should not turn to God and say, thank you, God, for having this man rape me and impregnate me. As some people actually even teach. So back to the passage, Psalms 139. The Hebrew word in the Bible, versions that are translated formed or made, is gana. And according to the New American Standard Hebrew Dictionary, is most commonly translated as bought, by, purchased, or redeemed. But for some reason here they translate it as formed or made. The Hebrew word translated in most being is 
kill y'all. And it means seat of emotions or the seat of your affections. The Hebrew word translated knit me together, according to the Strong's lexicon, uh, is soka, sokak, and translates as cover, covering, or defense. So contrary to the popular translations, the context of this verse is not about physical embryological development or God using his power to physically create new human life. But it is about the plan of salvation. The psalmist in Psalms 51.5 describes how he's born in sin, conceived in iniquity. And here, in this Psalm 139, he acknowledges that despite his sinful origins from his parents, God was already there acting to redeem and cleanse him from sinfulness. So here's how I rendered it in the Remedy Psalms. For you have redeemed my heart and mind. You covered me with grace from the moment I was conceived in my mother's womb. I praise you because you are awesome, wonderful, and marvelous are your works. And I know this very well. You know my entire being, how I was built from your secret code, constructed from the elements of the earth. You saw me before I was born. My entire life was recorded in your book of foreknowledge before one day came to be. This is how the great controversy understanding, understanding design law, making the entire Bible all harmonized together with the principles of God's nature and character lead us to an understanding and ability to interpret and translate these things in a way that there's no contradiction and is consistent with God's nature, character, methods, and principles of love. Let's go ahead and close with prayer. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you are a beautiful God who created the entire world to live in harmony with, with you. But even though Adam and Eve chose to digress and transgress, that you immediately stepped in to take upon yourself the responsibility to fix and heal all the damage. And we thank you for Jesus who became human and lived a perfect, holy, sinless life in order to purge humanity from the corruption of sin. And we open our hearts to you and ask to be reconnected, that your spirit will come and your holy, pure presence will begin in trans, uh, transforming us and complete that process that we can see you face to face one day soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.